to introduce my friend and neighbor of Greenberg and president of AWOL, Francine Shorts, to do the statement of occasion. Francine. to you, Laurie, who has really been a wonderful presence at our event these past several years. On behalf of the American Women of African Heritage, welcome to our annual celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday at the historic J. Heritage Center. We are delighted and honored, and we sincerely thank each and every one of you our authors, and our guests of distinction for being present. The American Women of African Heritage join you today in honoring Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., whose life was and still is an example for all peoples, and whose words continue to inspire and empower us to forge ahead to create a better, more peace-filled world for ourselves and our children and their children. We believe that Dr. King would be proud of our organization and its mission to empower women and girls of African ancestry and our vision to acquire Awa Manor, a cultural center that will draw together the entire community. Will all the members of Awa please stand or raise your hand to be recognized? We urge you to get comfortable, hold on to your seats, stay woke, <laughs> as the words and voices of all of our presenters and the spirits of our ancestors fill this marvelous carriage house. Happy birthday, Dr. Martin Luther King. that uh, Lori and the other participants in Good for Girls had traveled to Washington, D.C. this weekend to see the African American Museum. Um, and I don't know how many people have been fortunate in the audience to make that trip and to see that museum. It's, it's, it's fabulous, right? Um, so I was there a few years ago, and one of the most memorable sort of exhibits is upstairs, um, the more contemporary, I say, exhibit. And when you go into that, there's a poster that says, making a way out of no way. And I remember standing there and asked my husband to take a picture because I had heard that expression so often from my parents and elder relatives while we were growing up. You will hear from each of our guests today what that has meant for their families. All three of today's authors strike a balance of storytelling and historical referencing that will entertain as well as educate you on the trials and tribulations of blacks in America in the 20th century. Settle in, as Fran said, for we are in for a trip back in history. We'll be starting uh, with the Civil Rights, we'll go to Detroit, Motor City in the 70s, and all the way back to the Great War. Because one of our authors does have to leave a little early today, we are going to go um, in an order a little different from your program. So we'll be starting with Ms. Nell Braxton Gibsons, Dr. Nell Braxton Gibsons, whose first novel, Too Proud to Bend, is a journey of a civil rights foot soldier. It's a story of a young girl's transformation into adulthood during the country's most tumultuous history through the 50s and 60s. She has been called a foot soldier and is an example and reminder of those street fighters whose names we do not know, who do not have a national holiday in their honor, but we know we're critical to the struggle. 
It's part candid memoir and part informative account. Too Proud to Bend gives an intimate view of the Jim Crow South and rise of student movements. From growing up close to horrific parts of American history, the lynching of Emmett Till and the assassination of Megger Evans, Dr. Gibson's fight for social justice here and abroad has known few bounds. She lent her support to newly independent African nations and the anti-apartheid movement. Archbishop Desmond Tutu appointing her to a steering committee. She holds an honorary degree from the Berkeley Divinity School of Yale University and was the first woman to serve on their board of trustees. She and her husband were also activists who worked with the Black Panther Party, bringing free breakfast to children on the Lower East Side and founded the first prison law library here in New York State. I welcome Dr. Gibson to share her coming of age story that is so much more. Thank you. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Um, I'm going to start with an apology for having to leave early. Some of my emails, evidently, uh, from AWA did not reach me. And so the time frame uh, was a little off today in terms of my ability to spend time with you. If you see me during the question and answer period tip out, don't get alarmed. I am going to be tipping out early so I can sign some books so that you will have signed copies. Uh, of my memoir. I want to thank AWAR for extending the invitation to share a portion of my memoir with you today and taking you in uh, on part of the journey that led me to become a social activist and author. I'll be reading an excerpt from Too Proud to Bend Journey of a Civil Rights Foot Soldier from the chapter 13 titled Mississippi Goddamn. The chapter title is from a song by Nina Simone. In the last lazy days before school starts, my sister Rosemary and I stretch out under the famous Tougaloo Oak with our friend Charlotte Randall whose mother is an elementary school teacher and whose father is superintendent of buildings and grounds at Tougaloo College. Charlotte has always been more precocious than anyone else in our group. And on this day, she begins to relate a story she has read in the newspaper. As she talks, an icy chill runs down my spine. She tells us she has read about a murder of a Negro boy who either spoke to or whistled at a white woman. She says his name is Emmett Till. My sister Rosemary, age 11, and I, age 13, leave Charlotte under the tree immediately and go home to read the article for ourselves. The information is still sketchy, but it confirms everything Charlotte has said. As I put the paper down, I am gripped by a fear I cannot shake. For the first time in my life, I realized Negro children are not safe. Before this day, I thought we were innocent victims in an adult dispute. I thought adults would go after one another, but they wouldn't hurt children. In all the time we've been growing up, I never thought of myself as living in danger. But now the unthinkable has happened. To a 14-year-old boy close to where we live. And now I know that in Mississippi, anything is possible. 
Emmett Till had come from Chicago, Illinois to Money, Mississippi for a visit with relatives. On August 28, 1955, he and his cousins had driven to a country store to buy candy. Before entering the store, he reportedly accepted a dare from one of his relatives that led him to utter, bye-bye, baby, to a white woman inside the store. The kids left without any further thought of the incident. Four days went by. Then at midnight on the fourth day, a carload of white men drove to the unpainted cabin of Till's uncle, Mose Wright. Two of the men, Roy Bryant and J.W. Millam, got out of the car, went to the door of the cabin, and ordered Wright to get that boy who had done the talking. Mose pleaded with them to leave young Till alone telling them the boy was from up north and didn't know the ways of the south. But the men dragged Till outside, shoved him into the back seat of their car, and drove off. Joining a mob of like-minded vigilantes, Bryant and Millam proceeded to the Tallahatchie River, where they forced Emmett Till out of the vehicle. They made him carry a 75-pound cotton gin fan to the riverbank and stripped naked. They tortured him, shot him in the head, crushed his skull, gouged out an eye, and tied his body to the cotton gin fan with barbed wire before dumping it in the river. Days later, when investigators pulled his corpse up, it was so badly mutilated that his uncle Moe's right could only identify him by the initial ring his nephew wore. The boy's casket was sent by train to his mother in Chicago, who collapsed on the station platform when she saw the remains of her only child. She decided to leave the casket open so the rest of the world could see what had been done to him. An all-white jury deliber deliberated little more than an hour before returning a not guilty verdict, provoking NAACP Executive Secretary Roy Wilkins to proclaim at a Harlem gathering that month that the state of Mississippi had decided to maintain white supremacy by murdering children. Quote, the killers of the boy felt free to lynch because there is in the entire state no restraining influence of decency, not in the state capitol, among the daily newspapers, not the clergy, not among any segment of so-called lettered citizenry. Those who contend that the murder of Emmett Till had a powerful effect on a new generation of blacks. <laughs> they say his lynching had a tremendous effect on my generation of teens because we became the generation that would soon demand justice and freedom in a way unknown in America before. The murder of Emmett Till remains the defining moment in my coming of age. The confluence of his murder followed four months later by the refusal of Rosa Parks to give up her seat to a white man on a Montgomery city bus, followed by speeches of a 26-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. pulled those of us who became the Emmett Till generation into the civil rights movement by the time we were college students. And the student movement shaped and defined the work I would do for the rest of my life. That work is what continues to guide my search for equality because I learned that the hardships my ancestors suffered 
and those that I lived through in the segregated South did not stop us as a people in our fight for justice, and that they should not stop any people from struggling to become all they can be. I came to realize that it is our humanity that is at stake, and our humanity and the humanity of every human being is worth fighting for. Thank you so much for starting us on our journey today. So a little bit out of order than I originally thought, but we're going to continue um, to see how history and personal stories connect. Those of you who have been um, consistent attendees at this wonderful event may remember our next author, who was here for AWA's first program with her second novel, Into the Ghost Flow, which I did purchase and read and was able to share with her earlier that I just thought the title was so clever, and then as I read the book, it literally came to life. Bridget Davis is a novelist, dedicated teacher, and mentor. Helping the next generation of literary talent, she is co-founder and curator of a monthly reading series in Brooklyn. She is also a writer-director of the award-winning film Naked Acts, which is now in the Black Film Archives permanent collection. Ms. Davis is here to speak with us today about her latest novel, The World According to Fannie Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. This is a daughter's homage to a mother who has been part bookie, part banker, as well as wife and mother. Under different circumstances and in a different country, one can't help but wonder if there were more opportunities open to black women in the United States in the 60s and 70s, what enterprises Ms. France may have accomplished. This is a story of a mother's sacrifice and endurance for her family, and Ms. Davis is proof of that sacrifice. She is a graduate of Spelman College and Columbia University Grad School of Journalism. She is currently a professor of journalism at Baruch College. I welcome Ms. Davis to the stage. Thank you. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Thank you to the uh, members of AWA for inviting me back. I feel really flattered and really special to be back again. Um, I believe I was talking about this book the last time I was here. <laughs> Uh, it's been a, quite a process to actually reach the point of having the ability to hold it in my hand. So I'm very excited about that. Um, and I thank you all for being here. Um, I've been thinking a lot, obviously, about Dr. King today, as I'm sure all of you have. And I was thinking about how I was just a child in the last years of his life, but of course I remember him. My most vivid memory, really, is of my mother listening to his recorded speeches on our living room hi-fi. <laughs> and it's funny, as a child I always thought that he reminded me of my father. They had a very similar look. And actually, Coretta Scott King reminded me of my mother. Um, something about her, her, her demeanor and her presence, that beautiful long hair. And it was only later in life that I learned that my parents were the same ages as Dr. King and his wife. They were contemporaries. Um, so the excerpt that I'm going to read to you today takes place exactly one year before Dr. King's untimely death. Um, I'm thinking about it now, and it strikes me that, it just strikes me that Dr. King clearly provided African Americans with hope and courage, of course. But I'm also thinking about how he allowed black folks to feel a kind of entitlement. And I actually quoted an excerpt. I quoted a, a, a passage of his in my book. And I'm just going to briefly read that to you. Because it turned out to be one of my favorite of all the beautiful 
ways in which he could storytell, you know. Um, so I'm just going to share this with you quickly. Along with millions of other blacks, my mother watched on TV as Dr. King delivered his speech at the March on Washington. She heard him clearly say, we have come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. America has given the Negro a bad check. <laughs> I think that my mother was very much inspired by Dr. King's essential message that you too, black folks, deserve a good life. And I believe that this was in her mind back in 1967 when she taught me a big life lesson. And as I share this particular story with you now, I'm just feeling King's influence on my mother's choices. So, this is from the prologue. On a morning like most, I sit beside Mama at the dining room table, eating my bowl of sugar-frosted flakes and watching her work. She's on the telephone. It's receiver in the crook of her neck as she records her customers' three-digit bets in a spiral notebook, repeating each one. The crystal chandelier blazes above. Five, four, two, four, quarter. Six, nine, three, straight for 50 cents. Is this both races, Miss Queenie? Detroit and Pontiac? Okay. Three, eight, eight, straight for a quarter. Uh-huh. Four, seven, five, straight for 50 cents. One, ten, box for a dollar. Mama writes the numbers. One, one, zero. Draws a box around them. Hesitates. You know. I got customers been playing 110 all week. Yeah, it's a fancy number. Oh, did you? What did you dream? He was a hunchback? Is that what the Red Devil Dream Book say it play for? <laughs> now that I didn't know. I know theater plays for 110. Well, I can take it for a dollar, but since it's a fancy, I can't take it for more than that. You understand. What else, Miss Queen? Six eight four for fifty cents box. Uh huh. Nine seven two straight for a dollar. I find comfort in Mama's voice, in the familiar rhythmic recitation of numbers. I bring the bowl to my lips and drink the last of the sweetened milk before I rise and kiss Mama's forehead. She mouths bye-bye as I join my sister Rita, who's waiting on the porch. Together, we walk three long blocks to Winter Halter Elementary and Junior High School, passing by the lush Russell Woods Park. I am a first grader. In class, I wait in line to show my teacher, Ms. Miller, my assignment. We have had to color paper petals, cut them out, and paste them onto a picture of a flower. I like mine, as I have glued each one just at the base, so that the petals now reach out into a pop-up flower. Miss Miller looks over my work, gives it one star instead of two, and stops me before I can return to my seat. You sure do have a lot of shoes, she says. Last week, she asked what my father did for a living. 
And because I knew never to disclose the family business, <laughs> I said, he doesn't work. <laughs> She asked, well, what does your mother do? I froze. I'm not sure, I lied. I knew my mother was in the numbers, but I also knew not to tell that to anyone. I worried that my vague answer was the wrong one, but I didn't know a better response. No one had told me yet what I should say. Now, with Miss Miller staring at me, I look down at my feet, which are clad in, I still remember, <coughs> light blue patent leather slip-ons with lace-trimmed buckles. <laughs> a favorite pair bought to match a brocade ensemble that I had just worn for Easter. I nod, not knowing what else to do. Before you sit down, I want you to name every pair of shoes you have. She insists. Go ahead. There is no lightness in her voice. Anxious, I go through a mental inventory of the shoes that line the built-in rack in my bedroom closet. I manage to recall Ten pairs in various colors and styles. The black and white polka dotted ones with a bow tie. The buckle ruby red ones. The salmon pink lace-ups. Ten pairs is an awful lot, says Miss Miller. Her blue eyes fix on me with something that I cannot name, but which I would now call disdain and she orders me to take my seat. I can feel my classmates staring at me as I return to my table. Is it wrong to have so many pairs of shoes? Did, I, did my mother get them in a bad way? The next day in class, Miss Miller calls me back to her desk. I can smell the hairspray in her teased, blonde bouffant. You didn't mention you had white shoes. <laughs> she snapped. Indeed, I'm wearing a white version of the same pair I wore the previous day. I feel as though I have been caught in a lie. And I know I've disappointed my teacher. I worry that I'll get in trouble at school, or worse, at home. I'm sorry, I whisper. Miss Miller shakes her head in disgust and dismisses me with a wave of her hand. I return to my desk, trying hard not to look down in my shoes. I am ashamed of them. That evening, I tell Mama what happened, but I wait until after she's finished taking her customers' bets and before the day's winning numbers come out. I have already learned that the best time to tell Mama difficult news, something that could get you in trouble, is during that brief expected pause in the day. That's when she's least distracted and still in a good mood. She listens, and when I confess I forgot to tell Miss Miller about the 11th pair of shoes. Her dark eyes flash with anger. I fear spanking. That is none of her damn business, she says. Who does she think she is? Before I can feel relief that Mama's not mad at me, she says, Get your coat and let's go. <laughs> I do as I'm told. Mama 
throws on her soft blue leather coat, the color of a periwinkle crayon in my Crayola box. And together, we slide into her new Buick Riviera. <laughs> Are we headed back to school to confront Miss Miller? Thank God, no. Mama heads south, away from Winterhalter Elementary. She soon turns onto 2nd Avenue, drives to the corner of Lowbrook, and parks in front of the new center building. There sits Saks Fifth Avenue. We enter through regal, regal double doors, and I instantly fall in love with the store's marble floors and brass elevators and bright chandeliers. I feel lucky just being here. Mama takes my hand and leads me to the children's shoe department. <laughs> Where an array of options spreads before us. She points to a pair of yellow patent leather shoes. Those are pretty, she says. Perhaps the saleswoman looks at us askance, given how rare it must have been to see black people inside Detroit's upscale shops in the 60s. But I don't remember. What I do remember it's how nonchalantly Mama opens her wallet, pulls out a $100 bill, and pays for the shoes, while the saleswoman looks at her the way Miss Miller had looked at me. When we get home, Mama says, you're going to wear these to school. And you better tell that damn teacher of yours that you actually have a dozen pairs of shoes. You hear me? The next day, I wear my brand new shoes with a matching yellow knit dress. Nervous as I walk up to my teacher's desk, I announce, Miss Miller, I have 12 pairs of looks down at my feet and then levels those blue eyes at my face. Sit Miss <laughs> Miller never says another word to me. I feel her rejection, but I'm also relieved. I no longer have to worry about what I wear to school or feel bad about my nice things. I feel both protected and indulged by Mama. Growing up, that's how it was for me and my three older sisters and my brother. We lived well, thanks to Mama and her numbers, which inured us from judgment. My mother's message to black and white folks alike was clear. It's nobody's business what I do for my children, nor how I manage to do it. So much for that. I think you took us all back to first or second grade and those Eastern outfits that we all used to wear. So our final author, I'm, I'm really not sure where she found the time to write a novel. She seems to be on her fourth career, professor of chemistry for 30 years in the Bronx, global activist who participated in the freeing of South Africa co-producer of a documentary about Nelson Mandela, and a writer. Ms. Rodine Lenag holds a BA from Hunter College and a Master of Science from NYU. 
Inspired by her sons collecting their family's oral history through her dad, Cole, War, and Love was born. It is the story of her grandparents, including her grandfather, who was a Harlem Hellfighter under the French flag because his own country did not recognize his sacrifice. He and his fellow soldiers come back from fighting in Europe and are still second-class citizens here in the United States. Being poor and colored in the early 20th century with very few options and racist hiring practices, he became a coal stalker, but was stoker, but was, but was determined to give a better life to his children, a theme that we hear recurring over and over in the African-American culture. Please welcome Ms. Lynette to the stage for our final leg of our journey. Journal. I buried my head in the newspaper, hoping that the matter was settled. 
God, never to mention what I'm going to tell you to another living soul, especially mother and father. Okay, my lips are sealed. I playfully clasped my hand over my mouth. She was quiet for a moment. I waited and then resumed reading the paper. Aren't you even curious, dear? Yes, but I'm sure you'll tell me when you're ready. <laughs> Another minute passed. Albert, what I want to tell you is that, that Jenny has a son, a nine-year-old son named James. I dropped the paper and stared at Evie. Jenny, a son? Yes, dear. Remember I told you she attended the Upstate Academy in Troy? Yeah. She was quite young and impressionable when she went off to school. I'm listening. <laughs> well, after graduation ten years ago, she eloped with a young man, a no-count ne'er-do-well, who left her in the lurch when things got rough. Go on. Evie sighed. After he left, Jenny found that she was with child and had nowhere to go. She hadn't told mother or father about the marriage, so she felt she couldn't tell them about the baby either. Then she confided in Cousin Mattie, and Cousin Mattie took her in. James was born, and when he was six months old, she boarded him out with a family in Cousin Maddie's neighborhood. And Jenny went to work at the Peabody Collar Factory. You mean she boarded out her child with strangers? Yes, dear. What else could she do? She had to work. But she went to see him whenever she could. I shook my head and muttered, that poor kid. Don't be so hard on her, Albert. Anyone can make a mistake and choose the wrong person. I'm so happy I chose you. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get this straight. Jenny never told her parents about any of this. They don't know they have a nine-year-old grandson who's living with some people in Troy, and the boy doesn't know his grandparents. Is that right? Yes, dear. That's why it's a secret. <laughs> Damn it, Evie. I know what a secret is. Evie pursed her lips. You don't need to curse, Albert. I looked at my wife, almost disbelieving what she had told me. Prim and proper Jenny had a secret child, a nine-year-old boy of dubious origins. <laughs> I wrinkled my brow and shook my head again. Evie cleared her throat. I was sure she was about to drop the other shoe. <laughs> so I steeled myself. Jenny asked if James could come and live with us and attend school in Albany. I'm certain he wouldn't be any trouble. I was speechless. <laughs> I told Jenny I'd have to ask you, being that you're the head of the family. She rubbed her delicate hands together and smoothed out her stylish skirt. Why can't he live with his mother and cousin Jenny, cousin Maddie? Well, dear, Jenny says he needs a man in his life, a man he could look up to, and you'd be a good influence on him. You don't say. <laughs> Besides, Jenny works all day at the factory, and the boy would be left alone. Evie? We've just gotten married. I don't want the responsibility of raising a child. But what if I become with child? Well, 
that would be different. I'd be raising my own child. I'm just getting settled into the new job, and we don't need another mouth to feed. Albert, she said, seemingly on the verge of tears. I don't think he eats that much. <laughs> I'll tell Jenny she has to help pay for his upkeep. I'm not about to starve any child living with us, and I don't want Jenny's money. I slam my fist on the lamp table. What's more, he's a growing boy. He'll need clothes and other things. I know you wouldn't starve him, but remember, we're indebted to Jenny for chaperoning us during our courtship. <laughs> I grumbled, trying to think a way of a way out of this. Yes, I thought, we have an obligation to Jenny, but raising her child, it's too big a price to pay. Why doesn't she tell your parents about him? It doesn't seem fair to deprive them of their only grandson. He could even live with them. I agree, but that has to be Jenny's decision, Evie said. Evie, you're helping her deceive your parents. Now you want me to deceive them too. I simply won't do it. All right, dear. Evie twisted her lace handkerchief around her fingers. I'll tell them that when they come for dinner tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow? Darn it, I was looking forward to a restful day. I snatched up the newspapers and pretended to read. It was then I realized that my Evie, my cottony soft Evie, had a will as strong as steel. <laughs> the next day at noon, the boy arrived, carrying a small cardboard suitcase <laughs> in one hand and a worn baseball mat in the other, mitt in the other. His conniving mother, Jenny, accompanied him. When Evie opened the door, James ran up and hugged her. I was several feet away, observing the scene. Then Evie brought James over and introduced us. Pleased to meet you, Uncle Albert. It's nice meeting you, son. He extended his small hand, and I shook it. He reached up and hugged my waist. When I glanced at the tattle, tattle, tattered cardboard suitcase with the baseball mitt perched on top, the totality of his belongings, I sensed a desperate yearning in his little frame. My heart reached out to him, but my head posed a question. Would I be able to support this boy once Evie and I have children of our own. During the next eight years, Al and Evie have three children. Little Al, my dad, Susie, and Tessie. Al still works at the Stoker, but paints houses on the weekends to provide Evie with the small luxuries she craves. In 1917, the Great War is raging in Europe, and America joins the fray. Al enlists in the 1st New York State Colored Regiment in hope of getting a better job <coughs> if and when he returns. When Al's regiment finally reaches the Western Front in Europe, they fight, they fight bravely as part of the French army and earn the nickname the Harlem Hell Fighters. <laughs> Meanwhile, on the home front, Evie struggles to raise her children alone. A year and a half 
Aldapar. The deadly Spanish influenza strikes Albany. When Evie hears that the Irish family down the street has been stricken with flu and their baby daughter, Fiona, has died, she becomes terrified. But she prays and gathers and soon gathers her courage and makes a plan to protect her children from the incurable disease. <laughs> 